If you are a regular Scattered Curiosity subscriber, you probably recognize this episode title from last season and are therefore qualified to skip ahead to part four of this miniseries. It is identical, containing no added information. However, if you loved it so much you want to hear it again, well, I can't stop you. For everyone else, please enjoy part three of Better Half, presented by Scattered Curiosities. Today's episode reminds me of why I started this biddable podcast three years ago. Every time I come across a, huh, I never knew that, factoid, I'm betting that at least a percentage of you haven't either. Of course, these little nuggets usually pop up when I'm smack dab in the middle of working on something else. This installment of the program is no different and came out of preliminary research for an episode on the First Ladies of the United States, which won't be out till next season. Sorry. And I just got stuck on Eleanor Roosevelt, a fascinating individual who is often overshadowed by her husband-slash-fifth-cousin-once-removed, who is indeed fascinating in his own right. I mean, the mere fact that amid his four terms of administrative rule, most of the nation was unaware that the man couldn't walk. Can you imagine that today? And it's not like White House press people didn't know. They just considered it in poor taste to low-blow the commander-in-chief in such a way. Amazing. But the tidbit that got this chapter on the road was a trivial milestone at the commencement of FDR's presidency, when Amelia Earhart and her husband were to be overnight guests at the White House. Escaping a gala donned in ball gowns, Amelia and Eleanor snuck away and took a voyage from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore aboard the Eastern Air Transport Curtis Condor. Upon returning, Eleanor was questioned how it was to be flown by a woman. Her response was, quote, I'd give a lot to do it myself, end quote. In fact, Earhart did give Mrs. Roosevelt some basic mercurial lessons on the excursion, encouraging Roosevelt to apply for a student certificate, which she never got by cause of Franklin's wishes. To him, it was bad enough that she had a driver's license and denied Secret Service protection, preferring to carry a pistol at her hip like a total badass. And there's this great picture on the internet of her packing heat while fashioned in knickerbocker trousers and a tweed jacket. The quintessential Roosevelt. I would love to have been a fly in the cockpit to witness what these women talked about while taking wing that singular night. How has nobody made this into a movie or stage play? Forget all these stupid reboots, and let's get back to Hollywood generating original ideas, especially when so much can be conjured from these lesser-known factual exploits and reimagined to seem completely organic. Just start with some basic truisms, 
pour a big old glass of wine, and get cracking on the first screenplay draft of You, Eleanor, Die, Die, a completely counterfeit chronicle based on the historical affairs of the Roosevelts that begins with Eleanor's discovery of Franklin's infidelity in the company of a personal assistant and her averment to defy him through a feminist trajectory over his physical decline and disapproval of her self-sufficiency's influence on women nationwide. Scandalizing Eleanor's lesbian trysts, ever after infuriating Franklin to the point that he hires one of her lovers, Amelia Earhart, to conduct a reconnaissance mission over the Pacific Ocean, knowing that she'd be shot down by enemy fire. you go see that movie, wouldn't you? The wild thing is, bits and pieces of this reimagining are reservedly plausible and make me wonder if there is a niche market for entirely made-up past occurrences. Anyway, the First Ladies of Flight incident between Earhart and Roosevelt inspired me to learn more about them, where I found many parallels to their lives. Even though there is a 13-year difference between them, and of course Amelia only living half that of Eleanor's life, the two admired one another's advancements for humankind, and I rate both of them highly for their persistence. This is Amelia and Eleanor's Excellent Adventure. Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was baptized for her mother, Anna Rebecca Livingston Ludlow Hall, but favored her mid-monogram. She was born on October 11, 1884, at 56 West 37th Street in New York City, into a class of high society known as the Swells. The Roosevelts were all-American in every sense of the word. Her father, Elliot, was Theodore Roosevelt's younger brother, and her mother descended from a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Eleanor had two younger brothers and a half-brother via an affair between her father and a family servant. Wanton alcoholism sent her daddy to a sanitarium where he jumped from a window which miraculously did not kill him. He was a Roosevelt, after all. He died later of a seizure. Mother Roosevelt had actually given up the ghost two years prior to diphtheria, remembered as a devoted and attentive matriarch to her boys, who coldly referred to Eleanor as Granny, once telling her, quote, You have no looks so see to it that you have manners, end quote. Hence, it is no surprise that Eleanor would come to write, quote, No matter how plain a woman may be, if truth and loyalty are stamped upon her face, all will be attracted to her, end quote. 
a baker's dozen of earthly revolutions around the sun from Eleanor's planetary entrance, Amelia Earhart was born to Samuel Edwin Stanton Earhart and Amelia Amy Otis, who nicknamed the little spitfire Mealy or Millie. Her older sister, Grace Muriel Earhart, was Pidge. Their father also struggled to thwart the demons of crapulence, but their mom was the total opposite of Eleanor's and desired not to raise nice little girls. Mealy and Pidge wore bloomers, which was perfectly fine with Amelia, who noticed that other little ladies did not. The sisters hunted, caught frogs, climbed trees, scraped knees, went sledding, and were labeled tomboys. Is that an offensive term now? I'm not sure, but that is what they were called. Eleanor was, naturally, the first of them to fly the coop at age 15. Enrolling in London's all-female Allenwood Academy where she had a far more endearing diminutive given to her, Toddy. Toddy loved the institution and blossomed there, getting involved in everything and developing a close relationship with the headmistress. While back in the States, Amelia kept herself busy by connecting a homemade ramp to the roof of her family's tool shed fully intent on slewing down it and getting violently thrust forth. Technically, her cardinal take to the air, which left her with bruised lips, a torn dress, and a thrill that altered the course of her life. She raved to her sister, Oh, Pidge, it's just like flying. Let's jump ahead a bit to where Eleanor is 20 and back in the United States as a constituent of the Consumers League, intent on preventing the exploitation of young women laborers and inspecting clothes factories and department stores. Such brash do-goodery caught the eye of her fifth cousin once removed, Franklin, whom she had bumped into from time to time at social junctures. They were swiftly espoused, much to the chagrin of Franklin's doting mother, Sarah Roosevelt, who herself was demeaning to Eleanor from day one and would personify the stereotypical mother-in-law acting as a thorn in Toddy's side for nearly four decades. It did not help that Franklin was such a mama's boy who was obedient beyond reason. The cousin coupling has beguiled me since I first learned of it. Their families trace back to Klaas Martensen van Rosenvelt, a Dutch native who migrated to New Amsterdam in the 1640s. His son Nicholas changed Van Rosenvelt to Roosevelt and was foremost in a long line of the clan to hold public office. At Franklin and Eleanor's wedding reception, 
the then-president, Theodore Roosevelt, remarked, quote, Well, Franklin, there's nothing like keeping the name in the family, end quote. Interestingly, the two public servants generally supported one another politically, despite being from different parties. Both were accused of being traitors to their class due to their progressive agendas. TR for conservation and trust busting, and FDR with his WPA programs of the Great Depression. Throughout the next decade, both Eleanor and Amelia were realizing destinies and gaining the skills that would be needed to achieve their life's goals. Eleanor matured into a mother of six and a New York State Senator's wife, as Amelia saw her first plane at the Iowa State Fair and moved to Chicago before graduating from New Hyde Park High School, where she collected news stories about forward-thinking women in male-dominated careers, engineers, lawyers, and directors. And it's a good thing because men were dying needlessly by the thousands in World War I. In 1917, Amelia went to visit her sister Pidge, who was now living in Canada, a nation participating in the conflict, which harbored a lot of wounded soldiers. Amelia decided to train through the Red Cross, mostly preparing food, and she contracted the Spanish flu while treating soldiers and fought the nasty contagion for two months, making good use of her recovery time at her sister's place by reading up on mechanics and lucubrating the banjo. Feeling an autonomous sense of duty and purpose, Eleanor also started volunteering for the Red Cross in America, leaving the kids with Franklin's mother to much criticism and driving to do her life's calling. Not long after, Eleanor got wise to Franklin's affair with Social Secretary Lucy Mercer after unpacking his suitcase and discovering a whole bunch of love letters. It was then that Eleanor resolved to make a public life for herself regardless of Franklin or his mother's wishes and enlisted in a veteran's hospital to get conditions fixed for mentally damaged troopers suffering from PTSD, which back then was called shell shock, and before that, cowardice. Now, the Roaring Twenties were called so because they were crazy, awesome, and liberating for women and Americans in general. The Great War didn't too much ravish the USA, and the prospect of peace and rebuilding Europe saw opportunity everywhere in North America. At the outset of the decade, Eleanor joined the League of Women Voters, LWV, which was put together to assist the fairer sex in getting assimilated with civic concerns six months before their being permitted to vote 
through the passage of the 19th Amendment. The century-old club is staunchly nonpartisan, standing firm in their endorsement of the Clean Air, Clean Water, and Dream Acts, alongside universal health care, campaign finance reform, gun control, crusading against the Keystone Pipeline, and the death penalty. Scattered curiosity, the League of Women Voters ran the presidential debates from 1976 to 1984, but recused themselves after the Democrats and Republicans put forth rules to be abided for their participation. The LWV's president said the ultimatum would, quote, perpetrate a fraud on the American voter, end quote, adding that she did not wish the faction to, quote, become an accessory to the hoodwinking of the American public, end quote. The ladies' institution was in support of the creation of the United Nations, a federation Eleanor Roosevelt would later emerge as the face of. Earhart had since moved to the West Coast, where, one portentous day, she accompanied her father at an airfield in Long Beach, California, and took a 10-minute, $10 plane ride. Amelia recalled of the occasion, quote, By the time I had got two or three hundred feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly, end quote. In order to make that assertion a reality, she grinded as a stenographer, truck driver, and photographer to squirrel away a thousand dollars to take her preparatory lesson beside another female coxswain, Anita Nita Snook. Earhart then bobbed her hair, as was the growing trend of the day, and got a leather jacket that she wore to bed nightly to make it appear worn in to the judgy eyes of Bell Weathermen. Neely's budgetary constraints forced her to take the bus to its terminus and then walk four miles daily until she became cognizant of her need for speed and bought a used yellow Kinner Airster biplane that she named the Canary, with which she would soon set a female aerial record, zooming at 14,000 feet, just before becoming the 16th woman in the U.S. to get a pilot's license, number 6017. Sadly, due to financial hardships, she had to sell the canary, but she got a tawny-tinted two-passenger car she named Yellow Peril to fulfill her cruising needs. Soon after, her parents got divorced, forcing her to earn money as a teacher and social worker. At this point, FDR had been living with his polio diagnosis for a while, but that did not hold Eleanor and her friends from buying the Todd Hunter School for Girls in New York City and commuting back and forth from Albany to teach history and literature there, in addition to joining the Women's Trade Union League. 
Amelia was making the best of her grounded status by turning things around to metamorphose as vice president of the Boston chapter of the American Aeronautical Society before operating her incipient journey from Denison Airport and selling planes for Kinner Aircraft, maker of her beloved Canary. In conjunction with writing about aerialism in a local newspaper, wishing to create an assemblage of women flyers. Concurrently, Charles Lindbergh was completing his stag flight across the Atlantic. Amelia was asked if she'd also like to scud the briny body of water as a passenger, tasked with taking down the aviation log. Hell yeah, she exclaimed in my totally made-up history movie. After completing the jaunt, she made the statement, quote, I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. Maybe someday I'll try it alone, end quote. Amelia's journal, 20 hours, 40 minutes, is about the transatlantic winging that yielded a ticker tape parade down New York City's Canyon of Heroes and meeting President Calvin Coolidge in Washington, D.C., where she was designated Lady Lindy, a play on Lucky Lindy. Notwithstanding, I think she probably preferred the other branding, Queen of the Air. She would go on to peddle luggage, cigarettes, and ladies' sportswear in advertisements, as the English would say, and assumed the role of associate editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine, or Cosmo. Scatter curiosity, the return junket from Europe just so happened to be aboard an aircraft dubbed the President Roosevelt. In 1928, Franklin Roosevelt followed his larger-than-life relative Theodore's footsteps a second time, having already served as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, like T.R., by becoming the 44th Governor of New York. Erstwhile, Earhart and Lindbergh fluttered about as spokespeople for Transcontinental Air Transport, the company that would eventually ripen into TWA, which gave Mealy the freedom to race in the Women's Air Derby, or Powder Puff Derby, as snarky cowboy Will Rogers called it, from Santa Monica to Cleveland, placing fourth in the Heavy Plains Division. In the aftermath of the scurry, she formed a batch of doyens known as the 99s, based on how many joiners there were. And Amelia was their inaugural president. As the primary Mrs. Aviator to cross the Atlantic companionless and the headmost woman to whoosh an autogyro, she obtained Congress's Distinguished Flying Cross, a gold medal from the National Geographic Society, and a cross of the night from the Legion of Honor, compelling her to scrawl The Fun of It, a memoir about her experiences on the wing. Her next embarkation? Marriage. To publisher George Putnam, who had been asking incessantly. 
Amelia denominated the conjugality as a partnership of which she had dual control. And on their wedding day, she engrossed her husband, quote, I want you to understand, I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly, end quote. Keeping her matronymic in lieu of being addressed as Mrs. Putnam, she endorsed that George be appellated Mr. Earhart. They did not have any children together, though George did have two sons from a previous amalgamation. One of them, George Jr., contracted polio, the very ailment that plagued Mr. Roosevelt. It had been 12 years since women's suffrage when Eleanor drafted When You Grow Up to Vote and started a friendship with Amelia following the presidential election of 1932. Which isn't surprising because the two had so much in common as prominent women struggling with domestication being transfixed upon them by their husbands. Much like Amelia... Eleanor considered her consortium with Franklin to be more of a consociation than a love affair. Since her learning of Frankie's pre-polio philandering, Eleanor had lackadaisical desire for sexual relations with him. Their relationship became more of a corporate merger. Both parties distinctively strong yet in need of one another to achieve their goals. The subject of much speculation, Eleanor was instead quite close to another autarchic matron of the day, Lorena Hickok of the Associated Press, a known lesbian amongst Eleanor's many lesbian friends. Toddy is supposed to have written Hick, as she was affectionately called, epic daily letters, some stating that, quote, I want to put my arms around you and kiss you at the corner of your mouth, end quote, and, quote, I can't kiss you, so I kiss your picture good night and good morning, end quote. The first lady even wore the big sapphire ring that Hick gave her to FDR's inauguration. In the coming protractions, John Edgar Hoover, eminent director of the FBI for nearly half a century, who hated Hickok's agenda, kept a substantial file on her. For more on the titillating topic, check out Susan Quinn's novel entitled Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. Not a made-up book title of mine, an actual factual publication. This is about the time Amelia and Eleanor had their excellent escape adventure from America's snow-toned mansion. Inspired, Eleanor wanted to uplift women in the field of flight, as well as African Americans, by traveling with some Tuskegee Airmen in Alabama to promote the idea. Scattered Curiosity, referred to as Empress Eleanor, Madam President, and even Flying First Lady, 
Eleanor took to the air all the time with Franklin aboard the Guestware 2 before it was pronounced the craft was no longer fit to carry the president. But it continued to whisk her places as she traversed over 40,000 miles in FDR's rudimentary managerial purview. Eleanor liked to cover ground simply and denied the protection of Secret Service men, preferring to carry a gun on her hip. Eleanor became an outdoors woman that would have made her eminent Uncle Teddy proud. The colonel would have also taken repletion in her achievement as the pristine first lady to have a press conference in which only female reporters were allowed, matching her husband's salary only to turn around and bequeath it to charity, all the while chairing the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women and scribing It's Up to Women in the Wake of the Whirlwind. Simultaneously, Amelia came to be the initiatory woman to remain aloft nonstop across the United States, and used that celebrity to advocate for equal rights by refusing to seagull the poor little rich girl movie star Mary Pickford to the Bendix Trophy race who was to open this ceremony because women pilots were banned from the event. And it's surprising that Pickford wasn't more vocal on the inclusivity of these women in a male-dominated field as Mary broke barriers as a film producer and co-founder of United Artists. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt was not the first first lady to broadcast on the radio, but was the first to have her own program. On the introductory installment, Eleanor expressed concern regarding the influence of silver screen sagas on children and endorsed censorship of the medium. Again, Eleanor donated the proceeds from the 28 shows in her elementary season, including income made from appearances on other productions. Damn, she might have done a segment on this podcast which pays less than zero dollars. It actually costs me money to be yammering at you right now. She, too, tried to use her notoriety for civil rights in an attempt to make lynching a federal crime through the Costigan-Wagner bill. Nonetheless, her husband didn't undergird the demonstration for fear of losing Southern votes. Eleanor was quite unpopular in the lower states where many white folks feared the formation of Eleanor clubs, consisting of servants intent on revolting against their employers. This may have been the moment in history when the African-American voter switched allegiance from the Republican, Lincoln's party, to the Democratic constituency. Not to be dissuaded, Eleanor hosted another radio show, It's a Woman's World, which brought delight to her sponsors who found that her presentations meant money. Selby Shoe Company cited a 200% sales increase from being conjoined with the First Lady. 
1935 is also the year her My Day column debuted, which she penciled weekly until her death. Amelia had been operating as an engineering advisor to Purdue University and a career counselor for girls when she became the foremost person to flat hat solo uninterrupted from Mexico City to Newark and numero uno to soar from Honolulu to Oakland. In this breath, she desired a prize, quote, one flight which I most wanted to attempt, circumnavigation of the globe as near its waistline as could be, end quote. The following year, Amelia started preparing for her foray around the earth, which had been done before, but her vagabondage was to be closer to the equator than any other. In March 1937, an attempted volatation starting in Oakland headed for Honolulu suffered malfunctions and needed service at the U.S. Navy field in Pearl Harbor. Three days later, she experienced complications during takeoff. The landing gear dropped the belly of the transport onto the ground, wrecking propellers and runway alike. So, that plan was scotched to alternately proceed from west to east, Oakland to Florida, where upon landing, she announced her intentions. Quote, Please know I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. End quote. Fred Noonan was her sole crew member. Neither of them knew Morse code, relying purely on voice transmissions when they departed Miami en route to Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Suriname, Brazil, Senegal, Anglo-Egyptian Sudan, Ethiopia, India, Burma, Siam, Singapore, much of the Dutch East Indies, Australia, and New Guinea. The pair had completed 22,000 miles with only 6,200 left across the Pacific when their last known position was logged. At 7.42 a.m., she radioed, quote, We must be on you, but cannot see you. But gas is running low. Have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a thousand feet. End quote. Earhart disappeared July 2, 1937, heading to Howland Island from Papua New Guinea. The final conveyance was sent at 8.43 a.m. and has famously been marked as questionable. Quote, We are on the line of 157.337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this... Wait. We are running on line north and south. End quote. Meaning she believed they were in the right place when she was most likely about five nautical miles off course. The relatively nearby Itasca decided to send smoke signals to help the aviators find their way. All the same, this just so happened to be a particularly cloudy day 
And to make matters worse, she was using frequency 3105 kilohertz, which was not allowed by the FCC, who considered it to be unsuitable for long distances. Since the disappearance, conspiracy theories have taken hold of her legacy, including scenarios that range from a ditch landing on Nakumamura Island to being shot down and captured by the Japanese, whose sphere of influence included the Marshall Islands, to simply splashing down in the Pacific and sinking to a watery grave. The crash-sink rationale is the most likely sequence of events. Amelia Earhart was declared dead in absentia in 1939. Upon hearing of her death, Eleanor responded, quote, I am sure Amelia's last words were, I have no regrets, end quote. Amelia's spirit lives on through a host of posthumous honors, including the Amelia Earhart Airport in Atchison, Kansas, the Amelia Earhart General Aviation Terminal in Boston's Logan Airport, and being added to the National Aviation Hall of Fame, as well as the National Women's Hall of Fame. Celestially, her namesake was given to a planet that was ferreted out by Carolyn Shoemaker, 3895 Earhart, in addition to a crater on our moon. As Amelia departed the world and our story, Eleanor kept the fight against injustice alive by resigning from the Daughters of the American Revolution, D.A.R., for their banning of African-American spiritual and opera singer Marian Anderson and prearranged for Marian to sing at the Lincoln Memorial instead. Eleanor's departing letter from the D.A.R. read as such, quote, I am afraid that I have never been a very useful member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, so I know it will make very little difference to you whether I resign or whether I continue to be a member of your organization. However, I am in complete disagreement with the attitude taken in refusing Constitution Hall to a great artist. You have set an example which seems to me unfortunate and I feel obliged to send into you my resignation. You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way, and it seems to me that your organization has failed. I realize that many people will not agree with me, but feeling as I do, this seems to be the only proper procedure to follow. Very sincerely yours, Eleanor Roosevelt. End quote. This correspondence readied her sword-mighty pen for the next publication, The Moral Basis of Democracy. Then came the date that would live in infamy, December 7, 1941, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, leaving America no option but to join the Allied cause of World War II. And lest you think the United States behaved in a virtuous manner throughout the conflict, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 in turning Japanese Americans in detention camps, a decision that was silently protested by Eleanor, 
who redirected her efforts towards a film titled Women in Defense, which outlined how women could champion the wartime effort. She wanted gals to get out in the workforce, saying, quote, If I were of a debutante age, I would go into a factory, any factory where I could learn a skill and be useful. In 1945, FDR designed the eponym United Nations in the hopes that the newly formed organization could be successful in the areas where its predecessor, the League of Nations, failed. But he did not live long enough to see it really get going. He died on April 12th in the company of his mistress in Warm Springs, Georgia, before it was formed. Eleanor was part of the UN's principal delegation by appointment from Franklin's successor, President Harry Truman, who hailed her as the First Lady of the World. She was catechized to resign by Harry's replacement, the newly incoming Republican, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Never one to be idle, Eleanor oversaw the 1948 Commission on Human Rights and lauded it as the most crucial of her life obligations. She wouldn't slow down for another dozen years when she was hit by a car in New York City and developed a plastic anema, an affliction that would impede her stamina, not her writing, until 1962 when she was administered steroids that triggered tuberculosis in her bone marrow. Eleanor died November 7, 1962, and in 1999 was ranked as Gallup List's ninth most widely admired people of the 20th century and placed on Time magazine's 100 Most Influential People of the 20th Century. As Adlai Stevenson said at her funeral, quote, What other single human being has touched and transformed the existence of so many? End quote. 